All right, at this time, our first message will be brought to us by Mr. Reg Noland, and it is entitled, Herald the King. Okay, first I guess I need to clarify something. Harold is not the name of the king, okay? Harold, I'm not referring to Prince Henry or uh, King Harry or any of the rest of these. Harold, H-E-R-A-L-D, means to announce, okay? To announce. All right, so with that said, um, as we, turn this this way. As we approach the uh, Holy Day season, um, we've got... Um, we reflect on the sequence of holy days as the revelation and the rehearsal of God's plan of salvation uh, for mankind, which Mr. Gregory, I think, will speak on during the second um, message. We realize that they, like much of property, are dual in nature with both type and anti-type. Apparently, except for one. Further, there is a parallelism in the pattern in the first three and the last three holy days. For example, both Passover and Atonement picture Christ's sacrifice. The Days of Unleavened Bread and Tabernacles both illustrate extended periods of dwelling with the Rock of Ages. And First Fruits and Pentecost, the First Fruits or Pentecost and the Last uh, Great Day, both describe a gift from God coming down from heaven. The pivotal Holy Day, Trumpets, seems to be the fulcrum around which the two sets of holy days are balanced. Yet, trumpets is the one holy day with which we probably have the greatest trouble. For we don't know with certainty what the two silver trumpets mean. Nor do we have a clear anti-type, even though we are confident that the type is the return of Christ at the last trumpet. For those of you not familiar with those terms, the word, the A-N-T-E prefix means to come before. So an anti-type comes before the actual type. Christ's return to earth is the type. We're looking for something that would be an anti-type. Okay. So today I would like to make an argument that the anti-type is Christ's first advent to earth. That is to say his birth. Despite the fact that several members in the church of God whom I do respect want to place his birth on the first day of tabernacles. They do so on the basis of verses where the word dwell comes from the Greek and Hebrew words that could be translated to tabernacle with. And they focus on that word tabernacle to suggest that Christ was born on the first day of, uh, of a tabernacle, such as Revelation 21, 2 through 4. Revelation 21, 2 through 4 says, And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them. The word tabernacle, uh, in this, the word dwell in this one actually means tabernacle. And they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them, and he shall be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there will be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying. Neither shall there be uh, any more pain, for the former things are passed away. Isn't that glorious? Yes. Um, they also place his birthday on the Feast of Tabernacles based upon the conception of John the Baptist and uh, Zechariah's uh, 
ministerial role, role in the course of Abijah. And then they calculate Christ's birthday uh, when it would occur retroactively. But calculating gestation periods is an inexact science at best. Uh, because even today, uh, many factors can influence pregnancies. A 15-day difference between the expected birth date and the actual birth date is quite common. Indeed, first-time mothers may often deliver two weeks early. That said, I find the placement of Christ's birth on tabernacles quite problematic, logistically and typologically, as I shall illustrate shortly. First, Let's refute the common, popular, but erroneous worldview. Every year, millions of professing worldly Christians believe that they are honoring Christ by celebrating his birth on the Saturnalia of December 25th. But we know that Christ's birthday was not anywhere near Christmas or uh, not, not on Christmas or anywhere near it. And we can prove it from the pages of our Bible in a very few minutes with any one of three arguments. Here are the three arguments. First is the crucifixion argument. We know that Christ's ministry was cut off in the middle of the week, three and a half days, uh, three and a half year, sorry, in the three and a half days, as predicted by the prophets in Daniel uh, 9, uh, 20, verses 26 and 27, Isaiah 53, especially verse 8. This is the 70 years prophecy and all that goes on with it. Following the year for day principle that is stated in Numbers 14, um, uh, 34 and Ezekiel uh, 436 uh, which says a year is like a day and a day is like a year then his ministry lasted three and a half years or 42 months now we know his ministry began when he was about 30 this is from Luke 323 Luke 323 thus he was about 33 and a half years old when he died right 33 and a half years old when he died. Um, if you back up the half year, you'll get his birthday. When would it be? It would have to be, if he's, born, if he's executed in the spring on Passover, then his birthday would have to be six months earlier in the fall, not in midwinter. Okay, that alone should be enough to um, discredit Christmas. But let's go on. Uh, the next is the census argument. The census is taken at the time of Christ's birth, which caused Mary and Joseph to travel from Nazareth to Bethlehem, was a census of registration, ultimately for purposes of taxation, which required the respondents to declare the names of the members of their household, their place of residence, their property, and their wealth. That's what the purpose of this registration was. If Jesus were not born and circumcised until the first day of the Feast of Tabernacles, he wouldn't have been in the census. He wouldn't have been in the census. He would not have been included as a member of Joseph's household for over a full year when the next feast of, uh, or the Day of Atonement came around. No intelligent ruler is going to disrupt his people's growing and harvesting seasons of productivity, which occur during the summer, for such actions would then lessen their income and hence lessen government income from taxation. Further, the traditional numbering of the people of Israel, that is to say the census, always occurred on the Day of Atonement. All circumcised males were numbered among the tribes. Males were not circumcised until eight days after the birth. Go to Genesis 17, 12 to verify that. 
And he that is eight days old shall be circumcised among you, every man, child in your generation. He that is born in the house or bought with the money of any stranger, which is not of thy seed. We have confirmed in Luke 2, verses 21 and 22, that Jesus complied with this requirement. And uh, when he was eight days, and when the eight days were accomplished for the circumcising of the child, his name was called Jesus, which was so named of, of the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days of her purification according to the law of Moses were accomplished, they brought him to Jerusalem to be presented to, to present him to the Lord. Thus, if Jesus were to have been numbered among the Israelites in the tribe of Judah during his first year of life, then he would have to have been born at least eight days before the Day of Atonement, not five days later on the Feast of Tabernacles. So that causes a problem with the view that has been expressed. Hence, the trip to Bethlehem occurred after the spring planting, after the late summer harvest, but before the fall rainy season, which begins about the Day of Atonement in Mediterranean climates. The period from mid-October to mid-March is the rainy season, and it's plagued with storms and unsettled weather, as is suggested by Paul's concern about the weather effect on a boat in Acts 27, uh, 9 through 12. So let's look at that. Acts 27, 9 to 12. And when much time was spent, and when sailing was now dangerous, because the fast was now already passed, Paul admonished them and said unto them, Sirs, I perceive that this voyage will be with hurt and much damage, not only in the lading, not only of the lading and the ship, but also of our lives. Nevertheless, the centurion believed the master and owner of the ship more than those things that were spoken by Paul. So we have a clear indicator that the bad weather starts at atonement, roughly around the atonement. Okay, take that into account when we go to the shepherd argument. Here's a shepherd argument. Since the shepherds were watching their flocks by night in the, on the night that Christ was born, the flocks were in the field. Luke 2, verses 8 through 18 is the account here. This is not my Christmas message, by the way. All right. Uh, but it sounds like it. Um, and there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, by the way, have you heard the, the old song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing? Okay, so we're going to, this is a herald of angels announcing Christ's birth. Okay, um, I, and the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be the sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and, and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and peace on earth, uh, goodwill toward men. And it came to pass, as the angel who were gone away from them into heaven, that the shepherds said one to another, let us go even unto Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. 
And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in the manger. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told to them concerning the child. And all they that heard it wondered at those things which, they, uh, which were told them by the shepherds. It's interesting that they appealed to the, the shepherds, which were common laborers here, instead of any kind of uh, significant dignitaries. But again, remember, mid-October to mid-March mid -March is the rainy season in the Mediterranean climate. So by tradition, according to, uh, to Adam Clark's commentary on Luke 2, all the herdsmen bring in their animals into shelter before the fast of atonement. I'm quoting now from um, Adam Clark's commentary. It was a custom among the Jews to send out their sheep into the desert about uh, the Passover and bring them home at the commencement of the first rain. During the time they were out, the shepherds watched them day, night and day. As the Passover occurred in the spring, and the first rain began in the month of Marshavan, uh, which answers to a part of our October and November, we find that the sheep were kept out in the open country during the whole of the summer. As these shepherds had not yet brought home their flocks, it is a presumptive argument that October had not yet commenced and that consequently our Lord was not born on December 25th when no flocks were out in the field, nor could he have been born later than September as the flocks were still in the field by night. On this very ground, the nativity of December should be given up, says all says Clark. Um, the feeding of the flocks by night in the field is a chronological fact which casts considerable light upon this disputed point. That should be pretty obvious. Thus, if the sheep were in the field on the night of his birth, then that day had to occur prior to the Day of Atonement. The shepherds were startled by the brightness of the glory of God that came with the angels. So it was probably a very dark, a very, probably very dark that night. Perhaps even a new moon. Perhaps even a new moon, which occurs on the first day of each month. Therefore, although we cannot know the date with certainty, we can be reasonably confident that the birth had to occur prior to atonement and hence could not, uh, had to occur prior to the first day of tabernacles as well. Conclusion, his birth occurred between mid-September and mid-October, not mid-winter. Now, which day? Which day? Scripture does not reveal the date of Jesus' birth probably because it wants to protect it from astrological interpretation. If they knew which day he was born, there'd be all sorts of astrologers trying to predict what he would be doing, what his sign was, casting a natal chart to predict his future, all sorts. Don't believe it? Just think back a few years. Uh, Chris Christopherson came out with a song, Jesus was a Capricorn. He wasn't, but, but that's a whole other issue. But the point I'm trying to make is, if they knew the date of his birth with certainty, then they would definitely have been astrologers out there trying to figure out what he was doing. All right. Uh, uh, so, further, Bible scholars cannot agree on the date, for there is at least one scholar ready and willing at any point to defend nearly every month of the year as the date of his birth. But our God, as we know from 1 Corinthians 14.33, our God is not the author of confusion, but of peace in all the churches of the saints. 
And since he is a, a God uh, that was not the author of chaos and confusion, but of order and purpose, it's reasonable to think that such a, uh, an event of such magnitude as Christ's coming would occur on a significant day, such as a high day. But it doesn't have to. I'm, I'm going to emphasize that. It doesn't have to. But it's reasonable assertion since it is such an important point of view. Clearly, our God is greater than any of us mere human beings. And to paraphrase the, the psalmist, his ways are so far above us as we are above the amoeba. That's that, that the greater difference. Yet he is not some unfathomable mystery, as the Catholics would have us believe. Rather, he is a God who wants to reveal himself to us as Father and would want to make himself known to his children. We see this voluntary self-revelation in his word and in his holy days, the key to understanding his purpose for us. If we examine the patterns of type and anti-type that God has revealed to us in the sequence of annual holy days, then we discover some amazing parallel. Brian, put up that chart now, please, if you will. Okay, this is a chart that I put together matching up the holy day, the anti-type, and the type. Too small to read on the, back, back, on the board back here, but I'll, so I'll read it to you. For Passover, the first day of unleavened bread, the anti-type is the Passover lamb and salvation from the 10th plague in Egypt. The type is Christ is our Passover and salvation from eternal death. See, there's a similarity between the two, but the type is a magnification, an order of magnitude greater than the anti-type. For the days of unleavened bread, manna, physical bread from heaven, given in the wilderness for 40 days wandering, the type Christ's broken body as the life-giving spiritual bread of heaven. Pentecost and first fruits. This is when the law was given to us on Mount Sinai. It's also when the Holy Spirit was given as cloven tongues of fire, as a law written on our hearts. Notice, each one of these is a gift from God coming down from heaven. Um, Rosh Hashanah, day of trumpet. Hmm. We don't have an anti-type. But we do have the type, Christ's return at the last trumpet. Okay. Uh, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Uh, as the anti-type, we have a high priest and two goats, prefiguring the dual role of Christ as redeeming sacrifice for our sins and as bearer of our sins to carry them far away. The two goats do not represent Christ and Satan. They represent the two roles of Christ as sacrifice and as sin bearer to carry, them, carry our sins away from us. This pictures the yearly forgiveness of sins for, our, for the nation of Israel. The type is ultimate forgiveness, Christ's atoning blood covering our sins. Sukkoth, day of tabernacles. This is dwelling in, temp the anti-type is dwelling in temporary booths in the wilderness of Sinai. The type dwelling with Christ during the millennial reign on earth. Now, the last one, the, uh, the last great day, Simchat Torah is what it's called. This is Jesus as living waters, found in John 7, 37, we'll examine those in a minute. And the dead, if you remember correctly, uh, 
On the, at the time of Jesus' death, at that moment, he gave up the ghost. There was a great earthquake. It opened up the graves, and there were dead people seen uh, or temporarily resurrected and walking around, uh, many, many of them seeing them in the city. That was not a zombie apocalypse. That was a resurrection to life, is what, a prefiguring the great uh, resurrection of life later on. If we look to the type, it is Jesus as fountain of life in Revelation 21.6. And the second resurrection, it is Ezekiel 37, the valley of dry bones, and it is New Jerusalem coming down from heaven. But do you notice something missing? There's a big old gap right there. Do you see it? The type, the anti-type for the Feast of Trumpets. We know what the type is. It's Christ's return. But there's a big old gap for the anti-type. For each holy day, we have a clear type and anti-type, except for one. The day of trumpets is missing its anti-type. For each holy day, the type and anti-type are alike in kind. Alike in kind. Depicting the same event, but on a different order of magnitude. Even the last great day, which is something I'd never heard of before I entered the church, um, uh, has its type and anti-type. Let's look at those. Um, John 7, verses 37 through 39. In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood up and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believes on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this spake he of the Spirit, uh, which they that believed on him should receive, for the Holy Ghost was not yet given, um, because the, that Jesus was uh, not, a, not yet glorified. By the way, I'm reading from the King James on this one, so the word ghost should really be translated as spirit. It is not some wraith-like figure. Okay. Uh, Zechariah 14, verses 8 and 9. And it shall be in that day, we're talking about the last great day, the last day. It shall be that in that day, the day of the Lord, that living water shall go out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the former sea, half of them toward the hinder sea. In summer and in winter it shall be. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. And in that day there shall be one Lord and his name one. Revelation 21, 5 through 7. And he that sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst, a thirst from the fountain of water of life freely. Again, Jesus is proclaiming himself to be the fountain of, of living waters. And he that overcome shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. Now, let's go to that passage I mentioned where the, the dead actually were awakened. Matthew 27, verses 50 through 53. Matthew records it, the others do not. Um, Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in, in twain from the top to the bottom. And that's important. And, they quaked, and the earth did quake and the rocks rent. And the graves were opened. And many bodies of the saint which slept arose 
Again, you see them rising from the dead. And he came out of the graves after his resurrection. And they went into the holy city and appeared unto many. Okay? And they did not appear as, you know, decaying zombies. Uh, they were, this was a glorious resurrection, although temporary. Revelation 20, verses 12 to 13. And I saw the dead, great and small, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the book according to their work. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the death, dead which were in them. And they were judged every man according to their works. So, even the last great day has type and antitype. Type and antitype. So, why should all of the other holy days have a type and antitype and trumpets not have its antitype? Why would that be? Somehow, that violates the elegance, the beauty, the pageantry of the holy days for me. Maybe it's just the OCD mathematician in me, but I really need that last component to complete the pattern that is so clearly established in the Holy Day cycle. And for years, for years, I have listened attentively for the antitype to the last trumpet and Christ's glorious return to complete that pattern, the evident in the Holy Days. But the pulpit has been silent about it. We know that the celebration involves the blowing of two single-piece single silver trumpets. That we, that we know from Numbers 10:2, which says, Make thee two trumpets of silver, of a whole piece shalt thou make them, that thou mayest use them for the calling of the assembly, for the journeying of the camps. Note that these are not ordinary trumpets of sounding brass, but they are ceremonial silver trumpets made from a single piece of silver for purest tone, the kind that is used in pageantry. We know when the day of trumpets is to occur. Leviticus 23:24 says, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, in the first day of the month, shall ye have a Sabbath, a memorial of the blowing of trumpets on the holy convocation. Notice, first day of the month is the new moon. Uh, trumpet uh, Numbers 29.1. In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall have an holy convocation. You shall no, do no servile work. It is a blowing of trumpets unto you. We also know, what the, uh, we know that this memorial of blowing of trumpets is incumbent upon us for all, as an ordinance throughout, forever, for all of us, for, throughout our generations. Numbers 10.8. And the sons of Aaron, the priests, shall blow with the trumpets, and they shall be unto you an ordinance forever throughout your generations. Further, there has been much speculation about the meaning of the two trumpets, but none of the explanations I've ever heard gives that satisfying sense of elegance that is inherent in the other holy days. So I ask myself, self, when are trumpets mostly used? Then I answered myself, self, Trumpets are traditionally used in battles, for assembly, and to announce the arrival of dignitaries such as king. Wouldn't the sounding of a ceremonial trumpet be most appropriate to herald the arrival of the king of kings? So once as a babe in a manger, once again as a returning Messiah. Yes, I am suggesting that the most appropriate antitype to Christ's second advent, returning to earth in power and glory, is his first advent, his humble birth in a lowly stable. Now, 
However, as I said at the beginning of this message, there is no mandate that Christ had to be born on a holy day. It did not have to be. But suppose, just suppose, that he were born on the Feast of Trumpet, Tishri 1. The Day of Atonement occurs on Tishri 10, allowing just enough time between his birth and the day of registration for eight days to pass, for his circumcision to be performed, and one day of healing to occur. Because let's face it, folks, circumcision would be tough even on a godchild. Then Christ would have been registered with the house of Joseph, of the tribe of Judah, of the family of David, from the very first day for which he would have been eligible. Further, his being born on trumpets in no way nullifies his coming to tabernacle with us on Tishri 15. In fact, it would make his keeping the Feast of Tabernacles one of the very first things he did, even as a babe in his mother's arm. There is an elegance about how well this timeline fits. Therefore, both the typology and the timeline sync up so perfectly that the Feast of Trumpets is the only holy day fitting the time period occurring after the summer harvest but before the Day of Atonement. Again, it doesn't have to be on a holy day, but if it were, trumpet has to be it. No other way. Typologically, trumpet is consistent with his birth and with the principle of duality that each holy day pictures an early event and a later event. This principle of duality demands that the pictured events be alike in kind. Clearly, the blowing of trumpets in Revelation is the herald of Christ's second advent. If he were born on trumpets, he, we would have a typologically matching event in his first advent. These two advents, pictured in the blowing of the two silver ceremonial trumpets, which mark this day, two heralds, both from angelic hosts, incidentally, announcing the arrival, twice, of the King of Kings. 